0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins.
1: Welcome all you wiretappers out there back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. We have a special show, something that I have not done before, and I really have been wanting to do this. I have been following a man named Ronald Rawson, Ron Rawson, with his New Orleans Facebook mob-oriented pages. He's got several of them. I'll let you tell him about them. But I've got him, and I got onto him. He finds pictures of the real places. He really goes beyond the myths, beyond that Carlos Marcelo or Marcello, however you want to say it, that he once came up to New York City and sat in a meeting with some guys at the La Stella Hotel. He does a lot more than that about what the true culture of the development of the mob in New Orleans, Louisiana. So, hey, uh, welcome, thank you, Ron. Gary.
0: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
1: All right. Well, we've been Facebook friends for a long time and, and followed each other's stuff. And I finally, I get to meet you in person. So, truly is my pleasure. Ron, tell the fans a little bit about the different pages that you've got. You've got some really interesting stuff down there that you post a lot of pictures and good solid newspaper. First primary source information about the mob family in New Orleans. Uh,
0: Okay. Well, my original page I started out with in 2015 is uh, Crescent City, Mafia Murders and Mysteries. And I kind of started branching off with other pages because all the information I was finding and collect just kind of seemed to I don't know, kind of bottle up on the single page. Then I started a page called uh, the Bourbon Street Project, which if anybody's not aware, I mean, Bourbon Street for decades was pretty much run by the mobbed up guys in New Orleans. Going back before even Marcello, a guy named Gaspar Gulotta, he was connected. His dad, Caligero, was a made guy in the family. So anyways, I started with that and that kind of took off. And then I started a page called Graveyard Gangsters, kind of a side thing here. The tunes of these some of these guys are are really beautiful tunes. And and you know, just going to where you know these guys ended up, got to be an interest. And and then there again, you know, I started getting a lot of information on that. So I started a page for that. Then mob memorabilia, because I started collecting, you know, the stuff from around here. I kept going. How I got into that is I'd go to eBay to get pictures of some of the stuff, you know, like Carlos Marcello's, uh, New Southport club. And I started seeing these things that like, man, you know, I'd kind of like to have that. And so I started and it just grew into an obsession. I was, I've got a bunch of stuff now. And then I have the page called New Orleans whistles in the night and it deals with the David Hennessy incident mainly, but it, I kind of lump in the early. 1900s of the New Orleans family. It connects up pretty good. It's kind of the more the period before Carlos takes over in 47.
1: Interesting. Now, run, just run through in a few sentences that David Hennessy incident. It really shows the place in society of the newly arrived immigrants, the Sicilian folks that came here looking for opportunity.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, really, a lot of people think the Hennessy incident is what started all the mafia activity in New Orleans. But in actuality, it goes back to the Agnello brothers, you know, right after the Civil War. I mean, there was probably activity during and before the Civil War, but the earliest record I can find or anybody's found as far as I know, it goes back to right after the Civil War. The Hennessy incident, basically, David Hennessy, he was a superintendent of police in New Orleans. There's a lot of theories of why he was killed. Basically, he was slated to testify against Charlie Matranga and some others in favor of the Provenzano family who the previous May were thrown in jail for ambushing some of the Matranga guys. Supposedly, new evidence came to light that Hennessy got and their retrial coming up, I think it was a week after Hennessy was actually shot in October of 1890. He was supposedly going to testify in favor of the Pro- Provenzanos. The theory is, is to didn't like that and killed him. So then, of course, after that, the city fathers and the upper class businessmen, everything, they basically put out that he was killed by the mafia and they rounded up 250 Italians. They ended up indicting 19 of them. Trial starting February of 1891 ended March 13th of 1891 with their acquittal. Three were no finding and six of them were found not guilty. There was nine Italians put on trial out of the 19 because the courtroom was too small to fit all 19 defendants. So there was a group of 10 still awaiting trial on Saturday, March 14th, when about a crowd of 9,000 people or so Stormed the parish prison and they ended up uh, lynching. Well, 11 Italians, six from the first group and five still awaiting trial. Oh. That's been the biggest l- single incident of lynching in American history still up to this day. There were other bigger lynchings or not lynchings, but hangings of people that people like to cite, but they were either incidents that happened over several days. Or they were actually judicial sentences carried out. So, but even from what I understand, I mean, for decades, the lynching stayed with the people in New Orleans. You know, the big thing was, you know, Italians always say that for up until the 20s or 30s, people would still, they'd come across an Italian and they'd be still like, who killed a chief? And so it was yeah,
1: yeah.
0: now, you know, talking to a lot of the people I work with here and a lot of people don't know anything about it anymore. Which is kind of yeah. sad. This is your history. You got a Yankee coming coming down to you <laughs> telling you this history. But you know, at the same time, though, a lot of people when they find out find it interesting. You know, so hopefully, some people have yeah. dug more into it, learned a little more about it. But, so, all right, great. Thanks for
1: filling us in on that. I knew that story a little bit, a little bit about it, and uh, it is interesting. Uh, most people, I would say, mob fans particularly. Do yes. not know that story. I didn't know yeah. it until I it, saw it on your page, and I, I clicked on the link, and it's like, yeah, oh and,
0: and and just like with a lot of Marcello stuff, and what we're going to talk about today, there's a lot of myths out there that that's all it is. Exactly. Is myth,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah, we we were talking earlier. We kind of blamed the supposed his part in the murder yeah. of JFK on the fact that there's yeah. so many myths about Carlos Marcello. but the first one. Ron, the first one I want to talk about is the one that caught my attention because I had perpetrated this myth myself one time on my podcast. I, I don't even remember what we were talking about. And I said, oh, yeah, that time that the feds, the FBI just took Carlos Marcello and dropped him off in Guatemala and he yeah. beat him back to yeah. New Orleans. And, of course, that's I'm reading your Facebook post. I found out that was a total myth. So I want to correct that. And so. Tell us about what
0: happened, what really happened with that. Okay. uh, First, let me say, I don't know how this story of him getting dropped off in the jungle or even being parachute strapped to him and kicked off the plane, how this came about. Because (laughs) the newspaper clippings that I found of the day, telling the story. None of it mentions any of this stuff. It gives you the true story. And the thing is, is, you know, John Davis's book, Mafia Kingfish, a lot of bad information came out of that book. But this is one thing that Davis got right. So it didn't come from him. So I don't know where it came from. But basically what happened is Carlos, ever since 1953, after the Kefauver hearings where he was brought in, he took the fifth 152 times, I think it was. After that, the INS came along and his status as an illegal alien was brought out. INS came along and deportation orders were placed against him in 53. So, of course, he was fighting those orders for the whole time. And I believe at the time they were allowed unlimited appeals anytime an order came down. So, of course, you know, Carlos having money he did and the lawyers and everything, he was able to put it off, never was deported. But he had to go in quarterly to check in with INS to let them know, hey, I'm still here. Still an illegal alien, whatever, you know, just check in with them. <laughs> so he went in on April 4th, 1961, for a regularly scheduled meeting. He wasn't, as some of the stories go, he wasn't rousted in the middle of the night, taken out of his bed in his pajamas. He wasn't picked up off the street like a couple of guys with the Stasi or whatever and thrown into a car. And he went to a regularly scheduled meeting. And basically, as, as I understand it, what happened is they gave him a letter to read saying, hey, we've come to discover that you're a citizen of Guatemala. Now, Bobby Kennedy knew that was bullshit. They knew it was a fake passport and birth certificate. But basically, it said, you're a citizen of Guatemala, and, and so you are will be deported immediately. And of course, you know, Carlos, he had a lawyer with him, which is another part of the story that never gets told. A lawyer, which basically, as I understand it, He was kind of house counsel for Carlos. His name was Philip Smith. He had an office in the town and country, a motel office complex where Carlos had his office. I think from what I can gather, he just kind of basically did mundane, everyday things for Carlos. But anyways, two big, huge INS agents came into the office there and escorted Carlos and Philip out to a waiting car. He was taken to the airport. plane was already started. They ushered Carlos onto the plane with the two agents and they wouldn't let Smith get out to make any phone calls until the plane was in the air. And that's another thing. Um, Carlos, he he wanted to make a phone call to his wife, to his lawyer, wanted to get some money, wanted to get a change of clothes, a toothbrush. They told him no. Carlos always said, I was kidnapped. And I mean, yeah, he kind of was, you know, and it was under the guise of lawfully done and and all this. So, the really funny myths of this is once they were up in the plane and they got over Guatemala, and I, I heard that this was done to them twice on one show. They strapped a parachute to them and basically gave them a the boot out of the plane. It's <laughs> a good did, story. You know, oh, yeah. yeah it's it's a good, good story, <laughs> but yeah, that's all it is. It was FBI
1: agents when they got back. They probably told everybody that story. They said, oh, yeah, we just <laughs> we just. Went over to Guatemala, threw a parachute on him, and kicked him out. He, saw, he looked like he opened the parachute. We don't
0: know for <laughs> could, sure. Could be, you never know. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean you know, fifty one year old guy, they kick him out over the jungle. Well, what actually happened <laughs> yeah. is uh, they flew in to Guatemala City into the airport. As I understand, at their airport, there was a portion of it that was military use only. They flew into the military air force base, and Carlos was given over to. Guatemalan Air Force Colonel named Antonio Batras. I think I'm saying that right. B-A-T-R-A-S, Batras. And as the story goes, Batras told Marcello, Hey, you know, there's a lot of reporters and outside the gate. What do you want to do? And Carlos's response was basically, you know, I want to get to a hotel somewhere where I can rest and get something to eat. Well, for whatever reason, it wasn't really made clear. He landed in Guatemala City about 6 p.m. local time. They ended up staying somewhere on the Air Force Base until about 11:30, 12 o'clock. And the nicest, biggest hotel in Guatemala City at the time, anyways, was the Biltmore. Apparently, Botchers came back after several hours and told Carlos, hey, there's still a lot of reporters at the hotel expecting you there. What do you want to do? And... Carlos didn't want to deal with reporters. So somehow, what ended up happening is Bottres gave over Carlos's well-being care to his secretary, who was named Miss Jinx. They never gave her first name. His secretary, she had lived in the United States, so she spoke English and everything. And the first thing she did was take Carlos to get something to eat somewhere. I forget the name of the restaurant they went to. By the time they get done eating and get ready to go somewhere, it's like 2.30 in the morning. So she says, hey, we probably could get you into the Biltmore, but there might still be reporters, whatever happened. She says, instead, why don't you just come to my apartment and you can stay there for tonight? So he said, OK. And he gets to Miss Jenks' place and she says, you know, all he had his suit on. She, she says, if you want some clothes, there's some clothes in the wardrobe over there. So he goes and opens it, and he sees a bunch of different men's clothes. And he gets to thinking, you know, gee, isn't this a nice setup? Are they fixing to whack me, you know? Here I am, stranger from out of the country with this woman. Wouldn't it be just convenient if her husband walked in and shot me? So apparently, as Carlos told it, he had a very sleepless night waiting for somebody to come in and and clip him. But uh, obviously that never happened. So. The next morning, he had Miss Jenks call his wife here in Metairie, and she connected, you know, with the uh, the Spanish operator and everything. And once they connected, he got on the phone, told his wife and kids, "I'm good. You know, this is what's been happening. I'm going to this hotel. Blah blah blah." blah. So later that day, yes, he got into the Biltmore and everything, and, and was able to relax. The first. Day or so, he kind of ducking the immigration authorities in Guatemala because they had made statements, public statements that if his paperwork is false, he'll be arrested. So what doesn't make a lot of sense to me is, while well, back here in Louisiana, his lawyer, Jack Wasserman, was telling the government, hey, these Guatemalan papers are false. You know, you deported him under false papers. And I guess maybe Carlos, in an effort to avoid being arrested there in Guatemala, later that day, he went to the Guatemalan authorities and said, yeah, here's my paperwork. Yeah, it's legit paperwork. So here, you know, Carlos is saying, yeah, this is legit stuff down here while they're saying it's fake back there. Apparently, the authorities at the beginning, they just accepted it. It looked proper, you know, it's like, okay, well, you're good to go, Mr. Marcello. You know, have fun. But it it comes (laughs) out later that... Carlos had some ties with some higher up politicians. And of course, eventually, Carlos is deported from Guatemala also, which I haven't got into that aspect yet. He spent about a month in in Guatemala. So like I said, you know, when I started doing that series of posts, for a couple of years, I've had all this information. Like you were saying earlier, you know, life gets in the way and. And something comes up, and yeah. I've been wanting to do this big story and post, and a story in the NCS of the whole thing. And it's like, man, that ain't gonna happen this year either. I just started doing these little bits <laughs> of it, and right now I've gotten to the point where uh, Carlos is arrested on April twenty first, which would be Wednesday, April twenty first, nineteen sixty one. He's arrested in Guatemala for having false papers. It takes him another couple of weeks to actually. Deport him out of the country. But, uh, though I know the basic story of what happens after April 21st, I don't know all the details yet because I just haven't had time to go through all the information. <laughs> all uh, right. I understand. But yeah, in the days after, you know, he's told, Oh, you're good to go, you know, enjoy Guatemala and everything. He has his wife, Jackie, his daughter, Florence, I believe, comes down, his brother, Sammy and Vincent. And his son, Joe, they all fly down to Guatemala with them. This is within the first week he's there. So, you know, all those stories about, oh, Carlos, he spent three days in the jungle before he could call his wife. And it's all yeah. crap. <laughs> and his lawyer, Mike Morone, he comes down also. I mean, there's even a picture it's in one of the posts there. There's even a picture of Carlos, his son, Joe, and his uncle. I don't, I'm not sure if he's actually a blood uncle, but his uncle. Felice Galino at a racetrack in Guatemala City. So he wasn't walking through the jungle. <laughs> so, but, you know, like I said, that's about all I got right now. All right, pretty much it.
1: He made his way yeah. back. I would imagine all he had to do was catch a, some kind of a plane and get a yeah. boat or something and get back to the United States and say, hey, you know, I don't know what you guys are talking yeah. about. That ain't me. This is, There well, are papers who I am. I'm a, illegal, but I got papers that yeah. are illegal. And yeah. But, you yeah. know, and of course, we know everything oh, yeah. is different back oh, yeah. in those days. It is now there's no computers. Fingerprinting was relatively new. Guys like this were, you know, they had oh, political yeah. connections. And I mean, hell, we had these Chicago mobsters that basically the Attorney General of the United States, Tom Clark, helped them get out early because they helped Harry Truman get elected president yeah. in 1948. So it was oh, a yeah. lot different back then when it came to that level of yeah. operation and politicians and governmental bureaucrats that ran the immigration, INS or whatever they called it back then. So it was, it was different back then. I could see
0: where he'd just take a little vacation and come. Well, you know, let me say that Carlos, he had business dealings in Guatemala. Yeah. He imported tomatoes. Of course, he's known as the tomato salesman. He imported tomatoes from Guatemala. He imported weed from Guatemala. And he also had interest in the shrimping industry in Guatemala. In fact, his uncle, Felice Colino, had a fleet of shrimping boats that shrimped in the waters off of Guatemala. He was based in Patterson, Louisiana, but he had this fleet that, that had business down there. And just as a basic run through of what happened after he was deported out of Guatemala, he was deported into El Salvador and he stayed there for a few days. And then he was at a military camp. He stayed there for a few days and some El Salvadoran military commander came in one day. And by this point, he's with Mike Moran. His family has left, come back to Louisiana here. He's with his lawyer, Mike. They're together. They're in El Salvador. Officer comes in and says, you're going to be deported now to Honduras. So get your stuff together. You got five minutes or whatever. (laughs) They put him on a bus. And according to the stories, this bus goes in to Honduras up through this mountain path, is real kind of, as you see in a movie where it's a drop-off, you know, sheer drop-off, you know, down this mountain and this little road, this bus is just chugging up. (laughs) And apparently when they get about 20 miles into Honduras, they're still in the middle of this mountain range. They stop the bus and they put Carlos and Mike off the bus. Here's your stop. And so that's where the walking through the jungle thing came from. It actually happened, just not in the way that all the myths tell you. They ended up walking 17 miles down this mountain. They'd reached a village. They got a couple of local guides to take them into a town about 17 miles down this village. And I guess at one point, the guides started kind of acting a little hokey. Mike and Carlos, they weren't feeling too good about their chances of actually seeing (laughs) civilization again the first good chance mike and carlos they decide to get away from they drop behind and they kind of fall down this kind of sloping drop in the the side of the mountain to get away from these guys and that's when carlos broke stories very it's either two or three ribs but they ended up making it to a town in honduras and kind of lose track of what happened after that apparently they slept for a couple of days And, yeah, this is, I I don't know, I guess the middle of May or so. Well, Mike Marone, he flies back to Louisiana. Carlos is on his own by this point. But in a couple of weeks, he makes it back into the States. Now, again, it's different versions of how he makes it back. I've heard he came in on a private plane flown by David Ferry, private plane flown by Barry Seal, private plane, commercial flight, uh, shrimping boat. From probably is tripping one of his boats. So yeah, there is right now, as I understand it, there's a book in the works by somebody. And it's supposed to be collaboration with Joe Marcello, his son. However, I heard that Joe Marcello is denying he ever went to Guatemala. So... At first, I was kind of like, "Well, now we're going to get the real story on things." But yeah. now, after hearing that, yeah. I'm kind of like, "You know, well, are, are we going to get the story on things?" You know,
1: so <laughs> really, but well, separating the myth from the fact is kind of hard. Oh, to do yeah, some yeah. Of these mob guys, I know that most of oh, yeah. us would rather believe the myth because it's a lot sexier. Oh yeah, and more yeah. A lot of times, the it, facts. Is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> I know. I have people ask me about, well, what was it like? You know, following those guys around and. Working on the mob. Well, there was a lot of boring, yeah. long, boring <laughs> hour, mind numbing hours just sitting and watching nothing. And then you'd have like about five minutes, of a little flurry of activity, write down a few license plate numbers and then go back and call the FBI and tell you, Oh, yeah. Oh, you saw that guy over there. Oh, thanks a lot, man. Uh, uh, we never put them together. That makes yeah. sense over here, over there. Yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. All right, Ron, I appreciate it. Now, would you come back one of these days and you've got some more stories, kind of myth-busting stories uh, from what you said about the bank robbery the grocery store robbery? yeah, yep. that correct?
0: Um, real quick, anybody that's read Mafia Kingfish, they know the story of Carlos robbing the bank and the bank being happy to get their money back that they didn't press charges. That's a bunch of crap. <laughs> and then the story yeah. about Carlos becoming known as Fagan, because he used a couple of kids to rob a store. That's kind of got some factual stuff in it, but a lot of details were left out. But yeah, I'd be happy if you're willing to have me back, and I'd be happy to come back oh, and yeah. talk about yeah. him. and Anything New Orleans, I'm happy to talk about. Carlos Carlos is the guy we got the most information about, because he was the most public and went through so much. But I'd love to get into some of the other guys, too, for Carlos, and even while Carlos was around, because that's another myth. Everybody thinks Carlos was here doing everything by himself. That's in no way true. Yeah. I mean, there was a bunch of the guys there. There was a lot of people think, Oh, it's height, New Orleans only had 20 people. Well, no, they had more than that, but yeah, I'm ready to talk about anything.
1: So yeah, he probably had a whole like Kansas City to have a whole uh, huge extended network of professional thieves yeah. and boosters burglars and jewelry thieves, the guys that specialize in yeah. the jewelry stores and the jewelry salesmen. And he had the old extended, just like in Kansas maybe 10 or 15 made guys, but boy, that, their tentacles extended way much further than that. I'm sure it was the same way. Now, one last quick question, I guess. Now, how close was he to Santos Trapicante? Geographically, they were pretty close, but it seemed like I don't really hear anything about him doing business.
0: You know, that that's one of the subjects I've kind of been meaning to dig more into. Kind of like Kansas City connection, because I've heard a lot about Kansas City guys yeah. coming down here. And you mentioned uh, before we started this about the Luna being married into the Rizzuto family here. Right. But yeah, Traficante is one of the things I've been wanting to dig more into. But as I understand things right now, yeah, they didn't really, as far as I know, have a lot of business together. But Traficante, he came to New Orleans a lot. And there was at least one guy here, one made guy here, a guy by the name of Nino Loscalzo. He was the nephew of Joseph Loscalzo, who took over from Traficante after he died. I can't uh, remember his yeah, first name, remember. but he, he took over. Nino was his nephew. Carlos made him into the New Orleans family, as I understand it, as kind of like a favor. All the circumstances around that, I'm not, I don't have. They were close, but I've never dug up any concrete information of anything they were involved with, with each other as far as business stuff. It's kind of like with Kansas
1: City, they were close. The brother of our underboss, Frank DeLuna, was married to a Rizzuto, who was one of the underlings, shall we say, of Marcello back then. But I don't know of any real business they were doing together, but they had some kind of a connection. There's no doubt about that. I just, I don't know if anybody ever got into what kind of business they had. It may go all the way back to like the video poker machines that Gagliano and them got in trouble for. So about the same time they had, Kansas City family had a whole bunch of video poker machines throughout the whole city in Kansas City. And before all of a sudden somebody like, you know, word starts leaking out that, hey, you know, there's there's machines that you can make money money on all over the city. It's like a casino. And pretty soon it starts leaking out. You start hitting these joints and tech stops like, Oh man, they do. They're
0: all over the place. And finally the Bureau
1: works it up. So I can see that being a connection. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I never did find anything concrete as far as business dealings with Kansas city either. In my page too, I've got a lot of retired cops that remember a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Kind of hinted at, you know, yeah, there was business dealings between them, but There's never any details. I don't know if they knew the details and they're not just not saying or they don't remember the details. But there's (laughs) stuff I've been wondering about for years. And then all of a sudden the right person comes along and sees the right question. I'll go for weeks without any info. And then all of a sudden I get a flood of info and it just (laughs) seems to go that way. So maybe at some point, you know, you never know. can all be made clear. You never know. All right. Ron,
1: I really appreciate you coming on and helping enlighten the guys, my friends who listen to Gangland Wire. I have a bunch of them out there, and and you guys, I hope you appreciate this, Ron Rosson. And take a look at his Facebook page. You may not, a lot of people are anti Facebook, it seems like, anymore, but there's a lot of really interesting mob stuff out there, and he has some of the more interesting mob pages with uh, some really good, solid information. I highly recommend you go out and search those out.
0: All right. I appreciate you having me, Gary, and hope you do this again. This was fun. Thank you, Gary. We will. Thanks, Ron.
1: Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app. Or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page. And, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is. And at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the K.C. mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas The True Story of How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www ptsd.va.gov i hate saying that www i left it out when i said something about gangland wire you guys all know i can leave that out anyhow thanks a lot for listening and listen up next week i try to put out one a week music provided by our good friend and super fan from portland oregon casey mcbride thanks casey